Now that you've found UBN Radio and discovered our quality talk shows, it's time to spread the word to friends, family, and the universe. 24 hours of music and talk. Radio without limits. That's why people keep coming back for more. That's UBNRadio.com. Live from the world-famous Sunset Gower Studios in Hollywood, the best of a generation has arrived. Stories that matter and people who are making a difference. This is the Millennial Report. From the trending desk, here's Wade. Welcome to the Millennial Report. I am youth and culture columnist Wade Heath. And on today's show, we've got a good one for you. It's all about a guy who has committed his life to something bigger than himself. That's right. A man who has committed his life to the lives of others. And we will dive into that in just a bit. But a lot of people ask, what is this show? What are you doing here? Well, we are a show that shares the best of a generation, the millennial generation. If you are between the age of 16 to 35, then this is the show for you. We started this program because our generation has a tremendous PR problem. It is a major issue. We are looked at as sort of entitled, as a lazy group, as a self-absorbed, non-contributor generation. And unfortunately, society continues to try and define us as such. That's why we created a show like this. The Millennial Report is all about proving we are better than that. It's all about proving that we have something to offer. We offer something that makes a difference. We're here to change the world for the better. We're here to help others. And whether you are listening via Spreaker, Stitcher, iTunes, or SoundCloud, we thank you for locking on to our live show. And by the way, if you are not watching the show, you really should be. You can do more than just listen to it. You might be missing out on the best part if you're not watching. Everything you hear is also being transmitted visually. There is a TV element to this, so be sure to join us. UBNRadioTV.com or MillennialLive.com. On uh, UBN Radio, we are on Channel 2. Check us out. And you can also watch us live streaming on Facebook at The Millennial Report. Look, we want you to be a part of the broadcast because we are stronger and here to make a difference only if we are united in doing so. So be a part of the broadcast today. Share it with a friend and let them know that millennials, we're here to do something pretty spectacular. And speaking of doing something spectacular, I want you to know that the guest we have on today has done something truly spectacular, something truly extraordinary that I cannot wait to share with you. He's a guy that has given back in a way that has now saved the lives of others who are being persecuted for believing a certain way, who are being persecuted for their faith. 
But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, you need to understand one of the main reasons as to why he felt a calling, why he felt he needed to get involved. And so I want to share with you this segment from ABC News. It helps to explain the situation just a bit, uh, a situation that has largely been ignored. Take a look. This is where we need to go, I think. As Joseph and Michelle Assad work their way across the globe, their minds are focused on their destination. All right, we got to catch our flight. The northern Iraqi city of Erbil, where the ancient citadel and bustling central market sit amid a forest of half-built high-rises. The streets, for the most part, are peaceful. But a savage war is just on the horizon. The city is unmistakably Muslim. But drive into the district of Ankawa and you pass a statue of the Virgin Mary. You enter an area Christians have been calling home for 1,000 years. We enter the grounds of a modest church called Mar Aliyah to meet Father Douglas Bazi. Hello, Father Douglas. Hi. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. For years, he has been here reading the gospel written in Aramaic, the language of Iraqi Christians and the original language of Jesus. But Mar Aliyah is more than a house of worship. Today, it is a haven for 560 Christian refugees who have fled the horrors of ISIS. Living here in the courtyard for the past 15 months, less than an hour's drive from the fighting. How concerned are you about the security situation? How concerned are the people who live here? Do you think we have choices? We don't have choices here. I'm surprised how my people still exist here. By the way, I never call it camp. You don't call it a camp? No, I call it a center. Uh Under an asphalt sky, Father Douglas leads us into the warren of metal containers called caravans. So obviously this is the wash, and this is where they cook. cook. Yeah. Each one housing an entire family. How many people live here? And as we spoke to the people surviving here, we pieced together the story of how this all came to be. Actually, it was terrible. I, I don't want to remember that. The refugees come from a town called Karakosh, once a town of 50,000, the largest Christian-majority city in Iraq. We felt like uh, Karakosh is a peaceful place. On August 6, 2014, that all ended when ISIS mortars began raining down from the sky. Lillian Sakat is a 24-year-old kindergarten teacher. When they began bombing, two children and a woman died. Just days before, in a nearby town, ISIS took women and young girls as sex slaves. So for Rita Khalil and her older sister, Rania, the choice was simple. Was that part of why you knew you had to run? Of course, we are so scared to to do the same thing with us. Within hours, tens of thousands of people fled the town in chaos and headed for the safety of Erbil. The roads were choked with people and dust. (laughs) Nissan Buttress, a retired pharmacist, 
captured the terror of that night on videotape. His family of 10 packed into the back of his truck. What was that like? It must have been chaos. It is a difficult night. Dust and uh, childs cannot able to breathe oxygen. Others fled with little more than their most precious possessions. A Bible, a flute, a rosary, identification papers. That night, with traffic helplessly snarled, many of the refugees abandoned their vehicles and set off on foot and literally walked through the valley of the shadow of death. They began walking? Yeah, they began walking. And there was a lot of dust, and they were just uh, shooting in the air. Everyone was afraid. Father Douglas has first-hand experience of religious persecution. In 2006, he was kidnapped by Islamic extremists and tortured for nine days. They broke his teeth, his nose, and his back. I got shot in my leg. Still, the bullet. Where? Still, it's still here. The bullet is still in your leg. Yeah. So as the Karakosh refugees began streaming into his church, he was happy to offer them a safe haven from the horror. When people arrived, they were completely lost and confused. They were refusing even to eat because they say, I lost everything, why should I live? ISIS soldiers soon invaded the town. Their demands were simple and harsh. They were given an ultimatum. 24 hours, yeah. convert or leave. Or be killed or to be converted. ISIS went about its usual business, terrorizing residents who stayed, seizing Christian homes, marking each one with the Arabic letter Noon for Nazarene. Just as they did in these nearby towns, desecrating churches. They pulled down the cross on the church and put the flag of ISIS over all church in in so instead of the cross on top, there's yes, yes. the flag of ISIS. Meanwhile, you see that carnage, you see that chaos, and you see an issue that is going on um, right now in major Middle Eastern countries that very few people are talking about. And our guest today could not stand uh, for what you just saw and heard there any longer. He left his life behind to commit himself to the cause of saving lives of other human beings, and he joins us now, Alec Offenberger from Operation Pedal Patronage. Alec, thank you for being a part of the Millennial Report. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I am uh, honored to be able to speak with somebody like you who has committed his life to doing something uh, pretty pretty darn extraordinary that most people, I think, wouldn't have the courage to do. Uh, but right out of the gate, sir, can you tell everyone who the heck you were before you got involved in changing the world? Were you an average guy? Would you consider yourself to be Joe Normal? Uh, yeah, that's that's probably exactly how I would describe myself. Um, you know, I was just working at a uh, uh, firearms distributor. It's a it's a store I was running the uh, shipping and receiving department, and um, uh, you know, I worked nine to five every day, Monday through Friday, and uh, you know, went out with friends on the weekends, and that was that was about it. That was my t- typical life. That that was you, huh? I mean, it does. It sounds like most people. Okay, it sounds it sounds like most millennials. You 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 go to work, and uh, when you're off time, you have a little bit of fun. Now, share with us the sequence of events that led 
uh, up to you getting involved, and and we'll cover exactly what you did in just a bit. But uh, put people in the frame of mind that you were leading up to you sort of plunging in and and leaving your life behind uh, to do what you did. Well, um, you know, I don't really know how this all got started. It was a it was uh, very strange circumstances that that led to this. Um, I work in firearms, so every day this is what we talk about. I work with um, active and retired military, and um, this is this is the stuff that we talked about. ISIS every day. ISIS. We hear about how they went and did this terrible thing, or uh, took over this town, or you know, uh, put together this threatening video. And on and on and on, that was every day for us. Um, you know, it um, it affects gun sales. So you know, I I couldn't ignore this. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, I wanted to do something to combat uh, ISIS and you know terrorism in general. So I uh, I don't know. I was I was in California, and I came up with this idea to. To bike across the United States and um, raise money for these um, uh, for 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 the people that were being persecuted by ISIS and um, uh, you know I didn't know who to talk to or where the money would go um, but eventually I found this um, this uh, charity Mercury One and um, I read read up on what they were doing and um, you know I started making these plans I was making plans um, to to raise money before I even had a place to give the money um, so you know once I found them I, I I happened to be in Dallas at the time um, you know months down the road um, and they were based there so I thought I would just show up and kind of walk in and I don't know uh, learn a little bit about uh, this charity, and um, they they really surprised me with um, with what they had going on, and um, they had a real solution. You know, um, a lot of places will try and help refugees with you know blankets or food. These this charity was going to get them out, get them out. Um, so um, I put I put all of my time and effort into putting together this bicycle trip, you know, because I figured I could just, I could go across the country and, you know, I could, I could, uh, raise money, you know, person to person, every person I ran into, I would tell them, Hey, have you heard about these atrocities going on, uh, in the Middle East and, uh, try and get people to donate. So I spent months saving up, um, and, Eventually, I bought myself a bicycle. <laughs> and can you tell us why and where? Where did this concept come from of, of riding a bike across the country? I'm sure you were inspired by something in particular. I mean, I know you wanted to do this for that cause, but where did the idea of let's put myself on a on a bicycle and ride across the country come from? Um, well, you know, I'm kind of a big adventure sports guy. Um, you know, honestly, I don't I don't ride bicycles though. Um, like I'm not a cyclist. That's not my thing. Um, <laughs> it, it was just, you know, I, I'd heard of people riding across the United States for things like MS and raising money and they get, you know, big groups to do it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could just do that by myself 
and doing something like that by myself might, um, you know, it, it, it would give me a mode of transportation to be able to hit, you know, a lot of the small towns across the United States to reach, um, you know, people, people everywhere of every, you know, race, creed, religion, um, and that, that was my goal, and I thought the bicycle was just the best way to do that. <laughs> so you're not a bike person, no. and yet you thought, well, it's probably the best way to do it. Yep. Fascinating. Well, yeah, good for you. Good for you <laughs> to, to put a, uh, a, a, a symbol of uh, transportation in your life that you never used to begin with and, and then plunge headfirst into a cause. <laughs> that's that's kind of remarkable. Yeah, I... I you know, didn't know anything about bicycle maintenance. I, I walked into uh, the bicycle shop, you know, to to find a, to pick out a bicycle. I had no idea what I was doing. I just asked the guy, "What's the best bicycle for this?" He told me, and then I spent three months saving up for that bicycle, and I bought it, and that's what I used. Right on. And and leading up to this, so you you get the bike, um, you you understand the cause and what you want to do and how you want to help. You're your friends and family and and your employer. Now, I get it that you guys were talking about this sort of thing every day. How did they react when they realized that you were going to sort of leave your life behind for a while to commit yourself to something like this? Well, you know, um, you know, definitely you have um, that reaction of of shock, you know, like, really, you, you're going to do this? You know, <laughs> like, you don't know anything about bicycles, you know, you, you don't, you know, um, you get that reaction, uh, but you know, everyone was incredibly supportive and, you know, they just, they just knew they had to let me go and do whatever I was going to do. And they had a lot of faith in me, uh, um, even though I didn't have, uh, the experience or, you know, I didn't really even have a very good plan, <laughs> but, but, you know, they said that they figured he's gonna, he's gonna figure this out and we're going to support him and, um, you know, he's, he's going to do something awesome. So. And yet, and you felt so moved uh, by what was going on with these persecuted Christians in the Middle East being displaced and, uh, you know, being sort of ridden out of an area and, and being attacked and murdered and killed just for being who they are. You felt, you felt so moved by it that you decided, I'm going to get on a bike and I'm going to ride across the country. I'm going to raise awareness. I'm going to raise money to help them out. Tell me. Did you did you map out because you you say sort of this all came together for you last minute and you didn't really have much of a plan? Did you at least have a plan for how long this was going to be or or the states you were going to hit or did it just sort of come to you naturally wherever the wind blew? Uh, well, you know, originally I was just going to head. Uh, I was going to start in Bar Harbor, Maine, and uh, end in Los Angeles, California, and I did start and I did end there. Um, but you know, originally I was planning. On taking three months to do this, and um, I was going to cut uh, through um, North Carolina and start heading uh, uh, west from there. But uh, the trip ended up taking about nine months, um, and uh, I ended up going all the way down to Miami, Florida, um, and then up the west coast uh, of Florida before I ended up moving west at all. So. Um, yeah, none of it was really, um, it, it, it was kind of wherever I felt I needed to go. So every day I would plan, where am I going? Unreal. I, 
to have the courage to do something like that, just to, you know, sort of put all your chips out there and say, oh, well, I know, I know I need to do something, so I'm going to do what I can and we'll see where it takes me. I, I admire you greatly for believing uh, in not only yourself, but in your cause so much that you would do something like that. And I'm sure that you met a lot of people along the way that felt the same way. Uh, can you tell us about some of your most memorable experiences along this cross-country journey to help these Coptic Christians? Um, most memorable. Um, well, uh, let's see. In uh, Ocean City, Maryland, um, I ran into a guy named Alex. Uh, he found me on the beach. Um, I was just camping out there, and uh, I wasn't really supposed to be there, but you know, he he kind of rode up on me on his uh, uh, with his bicycle, and um, he was immediately interested, and um, uh, <laughs> we talked for maybe an hour, and he'd always wanted to go on one of these trips himself, you know, set me shorter one, and um, uh, it wasn't very long before actually we were on the road together. I mean, the guy pretty much dropped his whole life right where it was and he jumped on the road and we rode together for maybe 300 miles um, and eventually he ended up finishing in uh, um, uh, what's it called um, Key West Key mm -hmm. West Florida so um, you know but I he took me to a couple of his friends houses we shared meals we camped in people's backyards we um, <laughs> yeah we, we we went dumpster diving when we were hungry you know <laughs> Um, he taught me how to do that because I guess he'd done that before. Um, but learning uh, all all kinds of life skills along the oh, way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> way to go. Um, so then, um, let's see. In Gulf Shores, um, I met a woman who uh, bought me a po' boy sandwich and took me around <laughs> and uh, uh, introduced me to all sorts of people in town and um, uh, let me. Uh, live in her hurricane shelter um, in her backyard for about three days, rest up, and she fed me every morning. Um, and uh, we would go out on the town every night and meet people. And that was kind of how I did things. You know, I would meet somebody, they would introduce me to 10 more. And I would talk about what I'm doing and I would try and collect donations that way. That was kind of the, you know, the, that was what I was doing all the time, every town I came into. Um, you know, uh, I, I would, I'd be thrown up in front of, um, you know, um, all sorts of different groups of people, you know, every, every kind of church you can think of really to, to stand up and speak and, um, raise money for these Coptics. Um, I, I, I picked up sponsors along the way, you know, um, I picked up this one go ruck. It's, it's like a veteran, um, endurance group. They make backpacks and stuff, but they put me with, um, well, they, um, they have kind of this network of people across the United States, um, where you can, um, I, I would go and participate in these events with them, but it also gave me a platform to, to, uh, talk about what I'm doing. Um, and a lot of these people, they would take me into their, um, homes. Um, they would feed me, um, and that was in places like Fort Lauderdale and New Orleans and um, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, yeah, I, 
Um, you know, I, I would meet uh, wealthy people that would take me to incredible, incredible dinners that I've never had before. Um, and I've met poor people who had nothing to give that, you know, maybe I had some food and we cooked it up together and I stayed the night in their trailer. Wow. Um, it, it um, I mean, it goes, it goes on and on. Businesses, businesses let me sleep um, in their, in their bars, um, in their, in, in their backyards. Um, uh, yeah. I, um, and, and when you rolled into to town, when you roll even a, a new town every couple days or so, when you rolled into places, how did you strike up this conversation? How did you get people to the awareness stage of what you were doing? Uh, was it sort of a you announcing I'm here and this is why, or was it more of a you let them come to you sort of thing? I when I when I would come to a town, the first thing that I would do was was uh, pick um, a prominent place in town, whether it's a restaurant or whatever, some place where the locals would go. And I would go there and I would just sit. I would just sit down there. Maybe it's a restaurant. I would sit down I would order, you know, the cheapest thing that they had on the menu. Um, and I would sit and I would sit and eventually somebody would come up and they, you know, I, I looked pretty dirty and, <laughs> and beat up and, and rough and, uh, you know, people would come up and they were, they would question. And I had the, my bicycle, I mean, it had a hundred pounds of gear. Everything I lived on for nine months was on that bike. So when you saw that, you know, next to me or, or, um, outside of, uh, a place of business, it kind of brought, um, you know, it, it, it kind of, um, made people curious. So, um, I wasn't hard to pick out and, uh, they'd sit down and sometimes we would talk for half an hour before, before we would actually get to what I'm actually doing. And then from there, um, all sorts of opportunities. Um, I remember in a place called Rodeo in, in New Mexico, there was, it, it's got a population of about 150 people, uh, two businesses and five churches. And one guy happened to have connections with all the people, uh, well, all the different church leaders in town. And I went to each and every one of them. And I was introduced and I talked and I raised money. And um, that's, that's how that worked. And w with all of these sort of chance meetings and all of these gatherings you've had with people across the country, uh, the giving was generous, but it really took off at a completely different point, did it not? Yes. Yeah. Tell us um, about that. Yeah, no, that would uh that would be Dallas. <laughs> Dallas, Texas. Um I uh um I was maybe at three and a half, maybe four thousand miles at that point. Um and uh I ended up meeting uh talk show uh radio host Glenn Beck. And uh I, I you know, still today it's kind of uh, confusing how all of that happened because I just rode in the town and then all of a sudden somebody from uh, the Blaze News Network uh, called me up and they said, is this you? Is this what you're doing? And uh, told them, yeah. And soon enough, within 24 hours, I was in front of Glenn Beck and I was talking to millions of people on uh, live radio. <laughs> he was putting me up in the Four Seasons Hotel and then he, uh, he sent me... Um, 
um, he, he happened to be flying back to my hometown the next day and put me on his private jet and took me home to see my friends and family for 24 hours. Wow. <laughs> um, and in that, that, that 24 hours, I must have raised over $25,000. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Really just so it skyrocketed completely at that point because okay. you did have that audience of, of millions of people all in one sitting. Um, and, and congratulations because look what happens when good people are are allowed to be good. Look what happens when, uh, you know, there's something that uh, brings people together, unifies people behind a, a decent, honorable cause. Uh, that's tremendous. And so you, you got put up uh, and then you got taken home uh, to, to see your, your family. How long it had it been at that point since you had uh, seen uh, the, the mama? Uh, six months. Six months? Okay, so it had been six months since you last saw mom. Uh, they send you home to, to let you see mom for the weekend. So you come back, you leave Dallas with all this money now dumped into your cause and all this money now uh, sort of pouring in. Where do you go from there? What happens next? I keep doing my thing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kept doing the same exact thing, except now um, people knew me all across the country and they were following me actively. I mean, I think before um, before Dallas, I raised about $4,000 um, and I had maybe 500 followers. And after Dallas, I had about 3,000 followers and... Um, I had about what twenty eight, twenty nine thousand uh, dollars, um, uh, <laughs> you know, raised. So um, you know, after that, um, all these people were following me. So when I would come into town, they were, you know, they would they would text me, they would call me, they would message me. Um, hey, what? I I, I want to meet you. I want to take you out to dinner. You can stay at my place. I want to introduce you to uh, my church. Um, uh, I want to introduce you to my family, my coworkers, what, whatever. So uh, things were definitely a lot different after that point, um, and uh, you know things just continued to grow. Incredible, and and you end up in Los Angeles, the the goal marker, uh, as it were, the the end goal. So you, you show up in L.A., and what was that like to, to arrive at the Pacific Ocean, arrive to the uh, sort of hero's welcome, uh, if you will, that was waiting for you? Well, it, um, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, I had film crews there and everything um, that were filming my arrival and, you know, all these people. And um, <laughs> when I showed up, uh, you know, I, I pulled in and... Uh, they were all waiting for me, and I just kind of waved at them and kept going. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just went right past them, and uh, you know, I got my bike into the sand, and it was maybe uh, 200 yards um, to get to the ocean. But I, I was determined to get to the ocean, and I mean, once I got to the ocean, I, I, I felt like I still wanted to keep going right into the ocean. Um, so that was a, that was a very strange um, experience for me. You know, it after doing that for nine months straight, um, I know that even now back home, I sometimes uh, kind of I don't know. I uh, still have that urge to keep moving, to keep going, to keep raising more money, to keep traveling. But um, you know, yeah, uh, it, it 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 was a great it. 
it's it's the greatest achievement I've probably ever made. I, I completely understand. Um, you know, it's something that I can only imagine that a lot of a lot of individuals might dream of, you know, crossing the country for a cause or, or just crossing the country in general just to see things. Uh, and, and you did it for such an honorable reason. What would you say on that note? What would you say to millennials that want to do something bigger than themselves, but are nervous or concerned that, uh, you know, for all the for all the reasons that might, you know, it, it come barreling in on them fear wise, what would you say to them to get them to that next level, the level that you got to in order to do this in the first place? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a millennial, I'm 25. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've met a lot on my trip. And now I'm back home hanging out with all my friends again. And um, one thing that I really noticed with millennials is, um, um, I think a lot of people have been telling us there's specific ways um, that we're supposed to do things, and um, and we don't really take a whole lot of risks anymore. I don't think we take risks in uh, our relationships. I don't think we take risks in um, you know our our business ventures um, as 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 an individual. We don't go out and try new things. We get very into um, uh, what 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 we're comfortable with, and um, you know if. <laughs> It's 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 surprising if if you're doing the right thing and uh, you're putting all of your effort into it, it's it's really just almost a matter of time before it works out. But we don't we don't really see that. We we, we see these big walls that they're put up by whether it's by the the government or the people around us or you know um, um, the people that we've grown up with uh, and. Uh, I would encourage millennials to think outside the box and to really take the plunge um, to do uh, whatever crazy weird thing it is that they think they should do. And um, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm pretty sure it'll work out. Um, you know, for a guy with no experience in fundraising, not a public speaker, not um, not. Uh, <laughs> Not not a cyclist, um, never been to most of these places in the United States. You know, it was the first time for a lot of things, and I was able to figure out. And um, I think everyone else can too. I mean, you just have to put yourself out there and make it happen. If you're willing to do that, and if you're willing to push through the the toughest um, toughest parts and keep going even when no one's listening or or caring, then um, uh, eventually one of these days it'll pay off for you so very wise and inspiring words sir i appreciate uh especially knowing knowing that you've done so much now knowing that you've really pulled off something so spectacular i so appreciate hearing from an authority like you and i know you probably don't think you are one but you pulled this off you've done something uh that can absolutely be praised and appreciated uh listen to alec he's done it you can do it too sir where can people follow your cause where can people get in touch with you well um I guess uh, the best way right now is I have my my public site, and uh, that's just Operation Pedal Patronage. Uh, you can find that on Facebook. Just 
type that in uh, to your search bar there, and um, uh, you'll be able to find me, message me, um, uh, keep up with what I'm doing, and um, I definitely plan on doing more. So uh, Operation Pedal Patronage. All right, and we look forward to seeing what you do next, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time out for us today. And who knows, maybe in the future uh, we can have you here in studio for a uh, person-to-person chat. I know you wanted to be here today. Things didn't work out, but uh, maybe maybe we'll be seeing you in the near future. Uh, yeah, that sounds good. I would like that. Absolutely, so. me too. Alec Offenberger, operational, uh, Operation Pedal Patronage. Thank you so much for being a part of the broadcast today. Thank you. We promised we'd never let the atrocities of World War II happen again, and we've now started to let that happen in the world, and it's exactly what's occurring. If you don't know history, as the saying goes, it is bound to repeat itself. We said never again, and people like Alec, they're living up to that promise, because never again is now. Never again would the world's good men shrink back while evil abounds Never again is now Remember when they took their towns Innocent men never seen again until the smoke stained the clouds Never again is now If not us, then who? If not now That's right, never again is now. Alec Offenberger, you gotta follow uh, this guy's cause, you gotta follow what he's doing. He's an inspiration uh, to all of us who want to change the world for the better. Well, our generation really does love its nostalgia and recalling the beauty of childhood. Oh, it's a wonderful thing, which is why on each show, we dedicate a little bit of time to doing just that. I say, let's do it. It's Friday night and the mood is right. We're going to have some fun, show you how it's done, TGI. Remember when Saturday morning was magic and TGIF still meant something? It was a simpler time, and today we remember together. It's time for the Millennial Throwback. 
Oh, you bet it is. And today we jump back to a year where the North Ridge earthquake shook most of Southern California. O.J. Simpson spent hours leading police on a high-speed pursuit in his white Ford Bronco. And the Lion King became a king at the box office. It's a film that we all admire and appreciate to this day. Gather round, kids. It is time to remember 1994.
Kurt Cobain's body was found inside a garage apartment adjacent to his Seattle home. Dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun wound, police say a suicide note was nearby. Oh, 1994, how we've missed you. Goodness gracious. Wanted to end today's broadcast uh, with something that definitely needs to be seen. Now, this video circulated a couple weeks ago, and I feel like it's worth at least sharing. It's no secret that we live in a time of great division and uh, rage, frustration. We live in a time where tension is boiling over. We've talked about it on this program before, but I think it's important to share with you an example of exactly what we should all be more like. Take a look. I can't just sit back and, and feel this way without trying to change it. Gather Black Lives Matter and stuff. We all matter, hell. It's time for us to stop this today. No more walls. Today, we're going to show the rest of the country how we came together. Everybody get it in here, man. Everybody get it in. Everybody get it in. Everybody, everybody get it in. Everybody get it in. I thank you so much, as I am so humble, that you allowed us to come a long time ago. And that today, I pray again, thank you so much. I pray that everybody makes it. Amen. Amen. Now, for those of you that um, aren't watching the show and you're just listening, that was something that you really should watch. Um, it's a tremendous video. Uh, CNN captured it. Basically, what was going on was it was a protest in Dallas. Two protests were going on simultaneously. On one side of the street was Black Lives Matter. On the other side of the street was an All Lives Matter protest. And in the middle were police sort of keeping the protesters away from one another. What happened in that video was that a representative from each protest met in the middle and decided to break down the walls, break down whatever it was they were protesting against, and come together. One of the most powerful images from that video, not only did they come together, they brought the police that were keeping them separate together too. They brought them in on the group, and everybody prayed together. Now, I don't care if you're a religious person or not, that's not what this is about. What this is about is unity, and realizing that we are stronger together than we ever are divided. If you're somebody that feels the need to push others away or blame others for circumstances or problems, you need to understand that you're better than that and we as people are better than that. It's gotten to the point in this country where we're surrounded by amplified division and we're told that's the way to go. 
don't be that person. You can still be passionate about your cause. You can still share with everybody why they should understand what you're going through better. But you can do it in a way that is uniting, is kind-hearted, and is generous. That video there was a perfect example of how we should all be acting towards one another. You're not the enemy, and neither am I. Together, we can come to a conclusion. We can right the wrongs. But together is the key word. Definitely want to thank you for being a part of the broadcast today. I want to thank Alec Offenberger for also joining us as... I know he um, he definitely wanted to be here in person, but I, I know he has an amazing backstory, an incredible journey that he's been on, and so much wisdom bottled up, so many kind-hearted and generous stories to share. I hope that today you not only took away something from our chat, but I hope that he's inspired you to do something bigger than yourself, to commit to a cause that's greater than you. Thanks so much for being a part of our broadcast today and for tuning in, not only at MillennialLive.com, but also at UBNRadioTV.com. You can catch us, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and the like, just by searching The Millennial Report, and check us out on Facebook as well. You can follow me throughout the week, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, all that garbage. I would love to get to know you. At Wade Wire, W A D E W I R E. It's been an honor. Thanks for being a part of the broadcast, and we will see you next Tuesday at noon. The Millennial Report. The party doesn't end here. Subscribe to the Millennial Report on YouTube for new videos every week. Just visit MillennialLive.com.